get uh, continue our survey in Acts. We'll pick it up in chapter 21 and verse 37. Um, and we'll look at 2137 to 22:25. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire text. Just let me read here the first few verses of chapter 21 and into chapter 22. But let me open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my dear brothers and sisters here this morning, and we together thank you for your divine mercy and grace shown to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, enable us to understand the text at hand and how these principles might apply to our own lives today. And prepare us, along with our brothers and sisters who will be here in an hour for worship today, um, to see your Son as he is through the text we'll look at this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Chapter 21, Paul had been, Paul's been arrested in the temple, which we looked at last week, uh, being severely beaten, uh, rescued by Roman soldiers. We pick it up at verse 37. As he's about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, and we'll look at what he said in just a bit, but we'll stop there. Okay, here's Paul um, in Jerusalem, and as we recall, Uh, Paul originally came to Jerusalem to to bring a gift, uh, money, um, that had been collected um, from other churches, hoping to unite Jew and Gentile believers. And when he gets there, um, we know, whoa, hold on, brother, welcome. Brother Ray, welcome, my man. Great. I look forward to hugging you as soon as this lesson's over, my brother. He's in Jerusalem. James, of course, uh, ministered um, to Jews, Paul to Gentiles, um, two very different cultural environments, to say the least. Amen. And Paul, as you remember, he had gone to the temple and he had succumbed to James' advice, James and the other elders, um, to pay for the sacrifice of four men who were under a Nazarite vow. And paying the expenses for these men meant animal sacrifices would be um, offered. You had money and animals involved in this um, at the temple. And then he himself had taken a a rite of purification um, under Levitical law to be cleansed, to be able to go into the temple area because he came from Gentile company, Gentile nations. Um, That was the plan 
Um, we looked at some differences of opinion on that. You know, did Paul compromise? Was he just becoming all things to all men so that he might by all means win some to Christ? Some believe that. Some believe it was a direct compromise. And uh, whatever it was, it, the plan proved unsuccessful because just before the days were ended, um, he was recognized in the temple. He was grabbed and uh, mob rule takes over. And they inflict uh, a severe beating on him. Um, and it was some of the Jews from Asia Minor, uh, probably from Ephesus, that, that suddenly begin to shout in the court of uh, the Jews that, that Paul has brought into that court a Gentile. And that, of course, was uh, Trophimus. Um, this, of course, was an out-and-out lie. He, he didn't bring a Gentile into the... Uh, into the uh, Jewish court to the holy place. Um, Trophimus was indeed part of the party, part of his traveling companions, made up about nine, uh, nine or ten men. They had come to Jerusalem with Paul, um, but they're charging him for doing that. And in addition to that charge, uh, these Jews from Ephesus had said that Paul was disrespectful to the law of Moses and the traditions and so on, and that uh, he was no longer devout, and he was teaching that others ought not to be devout as well. So turmoil breaks out in the court of Israel. Paul's dragged from the inner court to the outer court, sometimes known as the court of the Gentiles. And uh, they close the door that separates. It says they close the door. Um, so he's shut in and he's locked and they begin to beat him mercilessly and likely would have died were it not for the providence of God. And uh, the Roman garrison that, that was uh, the Antonia Fortress, uh, which was uh, very close to the Gentile court, naturally overlooked the court. And a long staircase entered into that court from, from the tower. In Acts 21.35, he's being beaten. They deliver him. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers, verse 35, because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Sound familiar? Just as they said about Jesus, away with him. Kill him. So as they approach the top of the stairs, um, they're trying to pull him back because the crowd's still wanting to beat him in order to kill him. Uh, but here we have the world system, if you will. The system itself provides protection under the providence of God to spare this man's life here. And uh, I think we need to know that the laws are set into order um, by the God of the universe um, that we ought to use to our advantage as well in a right manner. And here, the world, so to speak, also provides a platform to preach the gospel. So Paul's delivered from the system, or delivered by the system, from hostile Jews, and now his platform is uh, a Roman garrison tower, or the steps that lead up to this Roman garrison tower, where, where he's going to uh, proclaim the truth. It says, uh, Paul asks this Roman officer, later identified in chapter 23 as Claudius Lysias, uh, for permission to speak. Notice verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, 
may I say something to you? And he said, you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So this officer startled when Paul speaks that he's speaking in Greek, that this guy isn't your, your run-of-the-mill rabble-rouser. You're your Jewish troublemaker. This is an educated and cultured man, apparently. And immediately he accuses him of being this Egyptian who, who had gathered a group of terrorists along the way. This uh, Egyptian insurrectionist. And Josephus, the first century historian, um, writes that an Egyptian Jew just a few years prior to this time, um, where Paul is here, um, had put himself out there as a Messiah. And he gathered a crowd of thousands. And he actually had them sit across the Kidron Valley in, in waiting for these, the walls of the city to collapse. And he would take over. This Egyptian Jew is uh, the Messiah who, who would lead them and rule them, um, freed from the hand of Rome. So that, that's, that's obviously never took place, but uh, that, that was uh, who this fellow was, that this uh, Roman officer believes Paul to be. And history records that many people died in that, in that course of rebellion that thousands actually died and that this Egyptian Jew actually fled into the wilderness, that they never did capture this guy. So this Roman officer asked, are you him? Paul replied, I come from the opposite direction. Verse 39, he said, I am a Jew from Tarsus, a citizen of no obscure city. So here now, Paul now requests to um, address the people who, who are trying to kill him. Verse 39, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So he allows him to speak, and he begins to speak. And he's speaking to the officer in Greek, and now he turns and addresses the people in their uh, own Hebrew uh, language of the day, which would have been Aramaic. And uh, everyone in the temple would certainly have understood uh, what Paul was saying. Uh, but the commander and the forces probably didn't understand him. And I think we see that later in the text, which we'll get to. So Paul begins his defense, and he begins with this, this statement, brethren, he addresses them, brethren and fathers. Brethren and fathers. So uh, perhaps he's addressing this, them in this way because the chief priest is now there. I mean, this was no small um, turmoil. This was no, this was a very big thing going on uh, out in the courtyard. So the Sanhedrin probably would have been there, the chief priest, you know, the 70 elders and all. And he addresses them as his brothers and fathers according to the flesh, no doubt. Verse 40 says, when they had given him permission, Paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great hush, great hush. And he addressed them in the Hebrew, Hebrew language. So the the steps of the Roman garrison, this tower, becomes Paul's platform to preach the gospel. That's quite amazing. So here you have a man prepared for 
the attacks of the world and a man prepared to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And he uses the language of those he attempts to reach. Okay, uh, Tongues hasn't been mentioned for 20 plus years, by the way. Um, uh, at Pentecost, obviously, and, and with the exception of the rebuke uh, to the Corinthian church, uh, Paul speaks to them in their own language. Brothers and fathers, 20, chapter 22, verse 1. Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So there's already a hush. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, he, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Now he's, he's about to tell them that what they refer to is as apostasy is actually divine revelation from heaven given to him. And, and some of the comparisons he makes, I think, is interesting as we're going to look at. Very few people have been met by God like this. And in it all, think about this. He's saying, look, you're saying I'm not Jewish? You're telling me I'm not devout? You're telling me that... that that, that I forsake and, and rebuke others with regard to the ceremonial laws of Moses? Is that what you're telling me? And then he goes on to give this testimony. Now, in this day, um, to speak in any kind of you know, a social exchange like this, a person would have to quick, quickly establish his, his credentials. So he tells them of, of his birth, his upbringing, his education, that he's, he's, he's a cultured, educated man. He's not, a, he's not your run-of-the-mill rabble-rouser troublemaker. And he's going to argue that his Jewishness cannot be disputed. That's what he begins with. Because remember, we can't forget the accusations made against this man. And I think is the reason why he begins as he does. Verse 3, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. So he's, he says, look, I've been tr I was trained up by Gamaliel. Uh, Paul, as you know, had also become a leading rabbi. He himself was a Pharisee. Uh, many in this crowd, no doubt, would have remembered him and his role and his zeal. So in an attempt to gain some of their respect here at this point and in, in, in to gain some common ground or to establish some common ground, um, he, he turns down, he gives his testimony. He establishes who he is, where he comes from, and, and now we get biblical reasoning and how God has reached him with the gospel. And this provides for us uh, uh, an example of witnessing how to get to Christ by way of what he's done in our lives and through our lives. A lot of people who are nervous about um, sharing the gospel with our lost friends or even strangers um, can begin by, I know who he is and this is what he's done for me. This is what I am. I'm a sinner in and of myself. Because the issue here is who, who is Jesus Christ? 
The issue here is, as Jesus raised the question with his disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do they say that I am? That's the prevailing question. And then what, what, what follows is an account of, of Paul, Saul, his conversion. And this is the second of three recordings of that conversion. We looked at one back in chapter 9. We have this one, and, and we'll hear it again in chapter 26. So Paul uses his testimony as, as a means to evangelizing and proclaiming Jesus Christ. A great example because, again, it's all about who is Jesus Christ. I mean, this was happened to me yesterday at the Home Depot um, where I gave this guy some time to listen, listen to his spiel to, to perhaps um, have Home Depot redecorate my kitchen, whatever. So you've got to sit down and listen to this guy. So I'm, I'm listening, and he's telling me and, uh, what the deal is. And then he asked me what I do for a living. Right. So I told him, and he goes, you are? I said, yeah. He said, I never would have guessed that you're a pastor. And I don't know if that was good or bad. I was like, man, did I offend him? You know, was I not being a good listener? Was I rude? And, uh, and I go, why, why do you say that? I mean, what does a pastor look like? He said, you just seem really laid back. Yeah, amen. He said, you just seem really down to earth and laid back. I'm like, well, there's some common ground right there. So I asked, well, who, who, who do you say Christ is? I said, do you go to church? Where are you from? He told me where he was born here. He's living in the Bay Area. And he uh, concluded by saying, you know, I have my belief in God and you know, and I, and I believe certain things about God that, you know, gives me security. And I said, look, it doesn't matter what you think about God. Because if God doesn't declare that about himself, what you think about him is irrelevant. So then I gave the gospel. And he was just tuned in. And then other people were listening. You can tell people get nervous. <laughs> And I, and I just declared the simple, straightforward gospel of Jesus Christ. You're a sinner like me who deserves hell. God requires a perfect, holy life. You can't do it. You've already failed. Jesus did it. He's the only one ever has done it. He died to pay the penalty of God's wrath. He bore God's wrath to pay the penalty for our sin and rose again. And whoever believes in him shall be saved. That you must believe. And he was like, wow, nobody preaches that these days. And I go, yeah, unfortunately. But the whole point is to get to the Gospels, to get to Christ. Paul uses his testimony. So he begins by telling them that he was an official, he was on official Sanhedrin business. He was on a business trip. Documents in hand to this place called Damascus. He said, I persecuted, verse 4, the way to death. The way is first century term for Christianity, followers of Christ, the way. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, and the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also 
who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So first he answers the charge that he's disrespectful to Moses and to the traditions of Moses, and he says, I'm a Jew. As a matter of fact, I was such a strict Jew. Basically, basically, he says, you know, I'd put you all to shame. He studied and adhered to the strictest interpretations of the law. That's how Jewish he was. Then he, you know, he has to bend over a couple times because he drops a couple names, you know. Pick up those name, names that he drops. Gamaliel is, is the one, is the big name. And he says, look, I traveled up and down the land of Judea to put these people into prison. Had letters in hand to persecute. This is who I am, and this is what I did. Remember what he wrote to the Philippians? He said, if anyone wants to have confidence in the flesh, I have even more so confidence. If, if that were, if I could boast in it, I would have more confidence in the flesh than anyone. Circumcised the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews is regarding the law, a Pharisee with regard to zeal, a persecutor of the church. with regard to this righteousness for ceremonial law. That's how he could boast. So that's, that's what he considered himself to have been blameless of. He said, you want to talk to me about law? You want to talk to me about Moses? You want to talk to me about traditions? You have nothing on me. Verse 6, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. In other words, I was met with a heavenly confrontation. I was on the move against a certain people and the head of those people met me. He met me. He came and met me. (laughs) And I fell to the ground, verse 7, And heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He's the one. Paul's saying, look, the one put to death in this city, in this city. As a matter of fact, he turned the tables over in the courtyard where you just arrested me. He turned the tables over and he referred to, and he said, tear down this temple in three days I'll raise it up again. Right here. And later on they would use that against him and they couldn't even find two witnesses that agreed. And what'd they say in response? Away with him. And they killed him. It's him. He's alive. He caused me to be blind. I saw his glory. He spoke to me. He rebuked me. And he turned me around spiritually. This is conversion. Aren't you glad for the Holy Spirit's conviction that you're a sinner? That you're dead in your trespasses and sins? That you're a wretched and you will not stand before a holy God? You know what that is? That's the mercy of God. Because until you see that and understand that, you can't be saved. He has to break you of that self-righteousness. And he breaks this man. 
he's explaining his new outlook on things Jewish, if you will, because he was, he was met by true Israel, the true Jew, the true Israelite. Amen? So defending himself here, he, he appeals to, his Jew, to their, rather, Jewishness, um, saying, look, this isn't some grand decision I came up, came up with on my own about following this Jesus. This Jesus blinded me at noonday. He addressed me, and then I inquired of him. Notice, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do? Lord. What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. You remember the words? Remember Ananias, which he's going to mention in a moment. Ananias said, Lord, uh, this is Saul, the one persecuting your people, the one persecuting the church. Yes, go to him. He's a what? Chosen vessel of mine, for I must show him what? All the things he must suffer for my name's sake. And this beating is some of that suffering. For the namesake of Jesus. What shall I do, Lord? So he was clearly recognizable, right? What shall you have me do? Who are you, Lord? What shall you have me do, Lord? Undeniable deity. Undeniable deity. Anyone who's born again of the Spirit of God recognizes the undeniable deity of Jesus Christ. To deny his deity is to deny him. To deny the deity of Jesus Christ is to not be a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not to be a believer. You're not saved. Or perhaps you're very confused. (sighs) Amen. And this is a good question for all of us. This is a good question for me. Every time I read the word of God, Lord, what would you have me do in response to your word? Because too many times I think we can just read it as as historic facts. Guilty as charged. The Lord delights in a broken and contrite heart more than he does following a bunch of minute details and rules. Right? Right? Who's more irritating than a a minute rule follower (laughs) whose heart can be corrupt? The Pharisees were rule followers. He loves a broken and contrite heart like David had. Nothing hidden about the sin of David. Amen? There's nothing hidden about the devotion of David either. His contriteness, his love for God, his repentant heart. Blessed are the people who, who continually live in, in, in repentant mode. Christians, I'm talking about, amen? In repentant mode. Depend, we repent because we're forgiven. We repent because we're cleansed. We confess because we're forgiven. And then, since I could not see verse 11, because of the brightness of that light, imagine that. No man can see God and live. 
I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus and one Ananias, a devout man. Notice how he describes Ananias. He's talking to these Jews. He was a devout man according to the law. Well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. So he describes Ananias in a way that would satisfy their Jewish appetite of of devoutness. So he appeals to his audience, no doubt about it. And receiving his sight, having been converted, he soon receives his calling. Uh, Verse 14, he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now... Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Does water wash away anyone's sins? Of course not. Of course not. He sees who Jesus really is, receives him as who he is. And Ananias says, rise and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Baptism, of course, is a symbol of washing away sins, a symbol of the new birth, okay? Then there's this reference um, to further confirmation of his calling in verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, okay, so he leaves and he comes back to Jerusalem. This is his testimony. Uh, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to, to, to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So he's been speaking in a thoroughly Jewish context. And he talks again about experiences that not a one of them would have tasted. Not like this. Not like this. He testifies to, to a seeing and a hearing that is on par with Moses, their hero, who stood before the burning bush. Who, who, who spoke to God as a, God spoke to him as a man speaks to a man. And he's testifying like this. This is like Isaiah who saw the Lord high and lifted up. And all he could do was put his hand over his mouth, saying what? I'm a man of unclean lips who lives in the midst of an unclean people. My mouth is foul. Compared to the the holiness of, of this exalted Christ. And we know that That was a picture of Jesus, pre-incarnate form on his throne. When we get to John 12, um, John 12 clearly says that that was speaking of Jesus. Amen? And the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah uh, finds its ultimate fulfillment also in John, that he's to speak to the nations. Right? How long, Lord? How long? <laughs> Basically, till they no longer believe. 
And just so you know, that I'm not bluffing here or reading into the text. In John 12, Jesus said, When I am lifted up on the earth, will draw, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death, okay, so being lifted up is to show that he'd be lifted up on a cross. The crowd answered, We'd heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can they say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who, who is the Son of Man? So Jesus, John 12, 35, said to them, the light, among you, the light is among you for a while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Refused to believe in him. Okay, So they would not believe so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He cites Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who's believed what, we have heard, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, the arm of the Lord is the power of God. Therefore, they what? Could not believe. Why? Well, because again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Him who? Him, verse 37, Jesus. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. He is the who. Isaiah 6. Fulfilled. So God tells Isaiah to remain in Jerusalem and preach, preach, preach. And to Paul, he says, get out (laughs) and go preach, preach, preach. Isaiah was told to stay. Paul's told to go. Get out of here. So here is a realized sinner in need of a Savior who is none other than Christ the Lord. He's preaching Christ. And and Paul said, look, I was there at the stoning of Stephen. Okay, now, up to this point, they've listened without, without any apparent uproar. Right? There was a hush, remember? And then when he's speaking in the Hebrew dialect, they're even more quiet. You could have probably heard a pin drop in this place. But, in verse 21, when he, when he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, Paul was putting the Jews and Gentiles on equal footing with ground, on, on equal footing with God here. Common ground, equal ground. Absolutely unthinkable to a Jew. That would be the height of apostasy in their mind. Verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So Paul's worldwide outlook, worldwide gospel outlook, Jesus Christ alone, Jesus alone is the only way for any man to be saved from any and every tribe, tongue, and nation. It was an offense to this crowd. 
So he gives this extremely, this stunning and flawless defense. Okay, and he's putting the pressure on them. Okay, this is who Christ is. This Jesus, you know, the, the people of whom I persecuted, he's the one. He came to me. He spoke of himself. He commissioned me to preach him, the only begotten son of God. So this is basically putting it back in their lap. Who do you say he is? The pressure's on you, right? The pressure's not on you to make anyone believe, amen? The pressure's not on me for the guy at Home Depot to believe, whether he does or not. I don't know what his view is about God because he never really got to that. I just wanted to make sure that if it wasn't this view, he was wrong, right? That's all. So he had to lay his head down in his pillow last night with that divine truth whipping around in his head, hopefully. That's what Paul does. But when he mentions Gentiles here, it trips a trigger of deep-rooted prejudice in these people. They hated Gentiles. Talk about prejudice. The Jews of this day were the most prejudiced people there were. Incredibly prejudiced. So the the thing that griped them the most about Paul's ministry, that he was going around preaching equality for any and all who believe in this Jesus. That Jew and Gentiles are one in Christ. Remember what he writes to the Ephesians? The middle wall of separation has been broken down. Using what is an image? Court of the Gentiles, which Josephus said had a wall. It was a little over four feet high. And there was placards on there that, that uh, archaeologists have all, uh, uh, um, found. They said for any Gentile to pass beyond this mark will die. So, you know, all he had to do was say the word Gentile. And and you see the result that brings us to the action of his people. So they listened intently until he says, God sent me to the Gentiles to preach. Oh, you're the Jew of Jews, taught up, raised up under Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a zealot. And you talk about this divine call, and he told you, he told you to go to the Gentiles. You know, sometimes Christians can be like that, right? Right? Those convicts in prison, you know, in death row, you know, they deserve to be there. Do they? Yeah. Don't let them out. If they raped and murdered someone, don't let them out. They need to be locked up. Should they be neglected, the gospel of Jesus Christ? No way, man. I did prison ministry for a decade. You guys know the story, my buddy. All those years of planting seeds just got saved this past summer. He's been in prison for 32 years. It wasn't being in prison that broke him. Amen? It was the loving kindness of God in Christ Jesus that broke him. No man is saved, as we looked at last week, by judgmental circumstances in this life. God may use that, but that's not what saves man. Some men, it just hardens them even more. 
It's the loving kindness of God in Christ, which they didn't know about, at least at this point. It infuriated them. So all logic and all reason and all sound doctrine, okay? Here's a preacher of preachers, man, breaking it down. And all the logic and all the truth is consumed by the flames of, of raging prejudice from their hearts. Verse 23, and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, flinging dust in the air, you know, blasphemy, oh, Lord, have mercy, right? Gentiles, oh, bunch of religious prude freaks is what they are. And then verse 24, and the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. Notice this. This is why I don't think the officer knew Aramaic. Could be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, okay, they're putting him in position now. Paul said, (laughs) he pulls out his... uh, he put out his Roman citizenship card on this one. This is a trump card, man. <laughs> Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, uh, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Can you remind me of the law again? <laughs> so he pulls the card, and we'll leave it at that. our survey for the day. Any comments, brothers and sisters?